Um, hopefully you got a Bible this morning. We're going to be in Luke 19. Uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 10 to, uh, for our time today. Uh, we're actually going to spend the next two weeks in this chapter. Um, so if you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to open up. Uh, we're going to spend today, next week, studying this chapter because it's just too rich and it's too packed full to get through in one sitting, which is good news for y'all, right? And for me, I wouldn't be able to, to talk after all this. But today, we're going to look at the first ten verses, and then next week, we'll look at the story Jesus tells as a follow-up because it's directly connected to this. So I would love for you to go home, read the next part, and you'll see that it's clearly connected to, uh, to, the, to the account that we're going to read today. I think these two sections are intertwined, um, and they need to be studied together, so we're going to do just that. But first, but first... Before we get started, I want to ask everybody a question. Um, it might be a question that you expect a preacher to ask you, but again, that's my job. So I want to ask you a question, one that I think will resonate with everybody and will make more sense as we talk throughout our time. So I want to ask you, what does making it look like to you? And everybody might have a different definition of making it, but what does success look like to you? Um, what does it mean to accomplish or achieve greatness to you? And I think everybody has their own personal uh, you know, answer to that, right? Um, you might agree with others' idea of making it. You might disagree. You might think they set the bar too low. They might think you set the bar way too high. They might think you have unrealistic expectations for yourself, and they might, you might think they don't you know, challenge themselves um, too much. So everybody has a different idea, different opinion, different understanding of what it means to make it. Maybe you don't even care about making it, and that's okay, right? But I'm sure everybody has an idea. What does it mean to make it? Um, what does it mean to accomplish or achieve greatness? What does it look like to you? Now, I know that's a pretty wide-open question, um, but here's what, I wanna, here's what I guess about your answers. Depending on when I, were, when, when I ask you this, and, and it, if I could drop in at different points in your life and ask you the same question, I'm pretty sure the answer at age 10 is different. I hope it would be the answer at age 10 would be different than the age uh, answer at age 20 and the answer at age 40. And I bet it would be a lot different than the answer you would give at age 70 or 80 or 90 or however old you may uh, live. Now listen, as much as 10-year-old me um, would, would uh, you know, have said, hey, making it is just owning a bunch of Star Wars stuff and video games. Now as proud of, ten, as proud of me as 10-year-old me would be, um, I've moved the needle up a little bit um, as I've grown up, even though 10-year-old me would say, hey, Justin, you've made it. Just quit. You've, you've already accomplished the dream. But I've learned there's more to life uh, than, than what 10-year-old me maybe thought was uh, it all about. Now, I, I think under 40s would probably say that, uh, you know, hey, making it is having a family, starting a family, having a family, um, you know, building a house that, you know, hopefully can live in for the rest of my life. Um, you know, I, I, I think, though, that most of us under 40 would focus a little bit more on the window dressing, a little bit more on the framing. We would be a little bit more focused on the possession side of things, right? Yeah, we want to make sure we have the people that we love, but we're also interested in the stuff that's going to be around the people that we love. And as you get older, you could care less about the window dressing, right? You could care less about what frame is around the people that you love. It's all about the people, all about the memories, all about the experiences you've made with the people that you want to spend your life with. Now, if you ask anyone as they get older, um, I think there's a lot fewer regrets regarding temporary things and far more regrets um, regarding things that stick with you, right, and people that stick with you or maybe didn't. Uh, and while we're at it, and this is church, so you're probably expecting this kind of stuff, let's take this up to another level. Eternally speaking, what does success or accomplish look like to you? 
And I know this is even more wide open because everybody has a different idea about heaven and about eternity and about what happens when you die. Even people that agree theologically might have completely different ideas uh, of what happens and what does it mean to be successful eternally. And is that, is that even a thing? Is that even a reality? Is that even something I should be concerned about or care about? But eternally speaking, and just to make you think about it, if you never thought about this, for at least for a minute, think about it. What does success or accomplishment or achievement or making it look like to you when it comes to eternity? Because we believe, and I hope you believe this, you should believe this, that this life is not all there is, right? That there's way more after than there is now. That what ne- what's next builds on what's now, but what's next is far more important and far longer than what's now. So I want to leave that kind of wide open for y'all to think about, but I think there's more of a through line between now and eternity than we might often Think And I think, the, I think the, the thing we really desire now that leads us down so many different paths throughout life, good paths, wrong paths, righteous paths, some not-so-righteous paths, um, the drive also, and maybe it mostly reflects this eternal longing that is within all of us to make it, to be successful, to accomplish something. And there might be some bumps in the road that discourage you, but over, over time, we kind of get back focused on, hey, I want to make it. I want to be successful. I want to accomplish these certain things. And, and I think if we can figure out what this eternal longing is, we may be better positioned to sort through the chase on this side of things. Now, speaking of chasing after, I think it's a good time to jump into Luke 19 and read about one man who chases after another man in this very, very famous, familiar story. So Luke 19, verse number 1 begins. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. He sought to see who Jesus was, but he could not because the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up in a sycamore tree to see for him, for, see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they, when they saw it, and they all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, 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 I gave half my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, we all know Zacchaeus, right? He was a wee little man, and maybe uh, uh, you probably learned about Jesus and Noah when you were a kid, but I bet Zacchaeus was one of the first five names you learned and memorized from the Bible because you learned that song that went with it like, and we're going to sing that song at the end of our service, so don't worry. Um, Maybe we will, since nobody thought that was funny. Now, the text tells us, y'all know me better than that, the text tells us that Zacchaeus was a tax collector, right? And he was very rich. Verse number two wants us to know very clearly. He was the chief tax collector of Jericho, and he was very rich. So he had everything he could ever need. He had made it. He was successful. He'd accomplished more than most people could ever dream of accomplishing. And Luke assumes his original audience um, you know, needs to know this. 
doesn't need to know what this means or the, you know, the details about this because they would have known, oh yeah, if he's a tax collector, if he's a, you know, the chief tax collector and he was uh, you know, of Jericho, he was a very, very, very rich man. But I, I want to dig into this because you might not know and we might not know what it really meant to be a tax collector back in those days. And this is tax season, so why not spend a little bit of time talking uh, about this? Um, but really, the word behind tax collector is really a, a, a bigger word or, or a broader word it's the word publican. Now, don't confuse that with Republican. They pretty much were both politicians, but publicans didn't golf. Now, just wait. We got eight, nine more months of political sermons coming your way. Now, publicans were private contractors. Don't walk out yet, right? Publicans were, were hired contractors by the Romans to do their business for them. So publicans were just Roman officials that were placed locally within the different empires, um, regions, and provinces. And of course, Jerusalem, Judea, was one of their provinces. They did more than just oversee the taxes. They were far more involved, more of a leader in the, in the city. They managed the business affairs. They were behind the bureaucracy, behind the local Roman military, the ports, the, the roads, uh, the building projects, the civic order, the civil affairs. They were very, very well to do people, very powerful people of their day. The Romans were very smart. They were very smart in how they handed, handled global order. Now, they ruled the world, right? Uh, but they wanted the local fronts for their operations within the empire, within each region, because they didn't want you know, Romans showing up and you know, acting as if they were taking over. They wanted a local face to be kind of the image and the you know, front person for the empire. And most communities really took to this and were fooled by this in some ways, thinking the Romans were just like them because they really were their own people. Um, it's kind of like someone who works for the federal government in our local town, right? The courthouse, the federal government employs the people, right? But if our federal government was actually an empire that oppressed its people, so it not the same, but kind of the same, right? Um, which is why it was considered a sacrilegious thing for a Jew to join the Roman Empire and go to work for them. Because the oppression that was brought on the Jews by the Romans obviously made it kind of a difficult thing for a Jew to work for the Romans when the Romans were actually oppressing the Jews throughout history. And also, to make allegiance to Rome meant you were making allegiance to the Roman gods. So if you signed up to work for Rome, then you had to sign up to say that Caesar was one of the gods, that he was either equal to or greater than your god. Now, most of the world didn't mind saying there was another god because they believed there were many gods, even if their god was their favorite. But the Jews were not like other people in other, of other faith. The Jews were monotheists. They believed there was one god, there was only one god, and they didn't acknowledge the rest of the world's gods, and they refused to say that Caesar was a god at all, and that's why they got into so much trouble with the Romans, right? Now, for Jews to cross the line and become a publican or a tax collector, it was as if they were committing treason. The Jews were not the only ones to resist, but they were the most notable because of their faith. Now, in some cases, Rome had to send officials in because of the lack of Jewish cooperation, which is why there were more Roman officials in Israel than any other province of the world. But there were some Jews who did cross the line. There were some Jews who had burnt bridges before and were not really in good standing with their inner circles and with their local communities. Um, and to be honest, the allure of the Roman favor and fortune seemed too good to pass up. I mean, if you were a single man, if you were someone that kind of had burnt some bridges in your past, you came to this crossroads where you could either take the Roman favor and the Roman fortune or you could stay as a nobody in Israel. Hey, which were you going to choose, right? Now, Zacchaeus was one of those who crossed the line. And he would have been blacklisted by the Jewish people in the Jewish faith 
And most of his, most of his people in his shoes didn't care. Their privileges as Jewish tax collectors allowed them to collect a lump sum of money off top of what Rome required. They were reviled by the Jews because of that, right? They were perceived as greedy and as in collaboration with the Romans. Tax collectors amassed crazy amount of personal wealth because all Rome cared about was getting its cut. And they were going to support their man who was in position. So if a tax collector wanted to add 20% on top of Rome's whatever percent, Rome would defend him because they didn't care. They thought it was funny. So if a tax collector wanted to say, listen, you owe Rome 10%, but you owe me 20 on top of that, Rome would say, you better give it to him. And they kind of reveled knowing that they were causing division amidst the different regions of the world, especially the troublemaking Jewish people that they didn't like. So, they could get by with murder, really. These individuals were seen as turncoats, traitors to their countrymen. Rather than fighting Roman oppressors, the publicans were helping them and enriching themselves at the expense of their brothers and sisters. So because of their skimming off the top, the tax collectors were very well off. They lived in their own precincts. They lived in the very fancy, luxurious towns like Jericho. They were the most successful of all the Jews. But still, many had family members that just couldn't see how they could just turn from the nation. There were some that resented them and were jealous, but most were just overwhelmed by the sense of betrayal. You, you see, the Jews were raised to have a unique zeal and passion and pride for their country and their heritage. Patriotism for Zion was, was unrivaled by any other ancient nation and even to this day. And we might want to say we could never imagine doing what they did had we been brought up in this sort of culture, especially with our ties to the Jewish faith. But come on, we know why they sold out, don't we? Come on, you know why you would have thought about selling out if you would have been in one of their shoes? Because the gains outweighed the losses by a large amount. You can imagine men like Zacchaeus heard wealth and privilege and superiority and connections and thought, why would I not do this? I mean, I would be above the law. I would be in connection with the law. I would have a mansion, extravagant living, luxurious toys, servants and slaves and exclusive and exotic opportunities. I would live as if I was a local king. One of the Romans own. The world hadn't changed much. Lavish and unchecked power always leads to cultures where men have access to all the wine and women they could want, right? An influence over any corner of society. And really, this speaks to the order of the day. I want to talk about that for a minute. The accepted order. I'm not saying this was the right way for things to be. This is just how things were back in the ancient world, and maybe still is in some cultures, but this was very pressing in the ancient world. The pathway out to men was that they needed to feel successful. And most, most women were, had a path in front of them that said, hey, you need to feel useful. And most men were all about being successful, and most women were about being useful, which is why a lot of women were led into lifestyles that were so tragic because society pushed them down that road. And why men just took and took and took and didn't feel bad about it because they were told this is what it means to be successful. This is what it means to make it. Now, those aren't mutually exclusive, but these are the paths laid down by the ancient world. And there are paths laid out for every one of us by our society, by our world, and by our culture that tells us this is the way 
to find success, to find worth, and to find fulfillment. There are ways that feel natural. There are ways that feel unnatural until you take a few more steps or a few more sips, and then it's like, yeah, I, I see why I need this or i got to go farther with this. The American dream says, hey, if you do this, you'll be successful. The Republican Party says, if you follow us, you'll be successful. The Democratic Party says, if you follow us, you'll be successful. Everybody tries to sell the world on their vision, and every one of us follows somebody, somebody's vision, don't we? We might be our own people, but we follow somebody's path in some way, shape, or form. The reason why we take any or either is because we think life will be better if we do that, if we vote that way, if we believe that way, if we live that way, right? You don't do it because you think it's going to hurt you, right? Nothing wrong with that. We'll think, hey, there'll be success, there'll be worth, there'll be fulfillment. But here's here's where I want to step in, if you'll let me, and where I want to commentate a little bit. What if... We're looking for something more and something deeper. What if making it means more than what we've accepted it to mean? I argue that we definitely are looking for something more, and I argue that making it is much, much more. And see, we think as if we're looking for something that can satisfy our needs and our desires, and we are, right? We're looking for something because we have this desire, we have this need. But I want to ask you, what is our greatest need? What is behind all of our ideas, all of our aspirations? What is the one thing that drives us that we all so desperately want? And could there be this single thing that every person shares, that every human being shares, this one thing that drives all of us that we all so desperately want, that we all so desperately need? Now, I think you can agree with what I've laid down prior to, and you might not go along with what I say next, but I'm willing to put it out there because I think it's true, and you can be the judge The one thing that we all want more than anything else, more than success, more than worth, more than fulfillment, really all of these stem from a greater need, a desire, a longing that we all have for approval. Every single person wants, needs somebody's approval. Whose approval? Well, it varies. And it might be somebody different every day. But we all want, maybe even need, approval. We crave it. We long for it from society, from somebody. Again, it's open season. We all want it at some point, at any given point, on a day, a season, or in our lives. We all want to hear somebody say, well done. We all want to feel as if the world or culture or our friends or somebody is saying to us, you have done well, I'm proud of you, I accept you, I approve of what you've been doing. You know what fundamentally, you know what fundamentally suggests that this is a basic and shared universal need of every single human being? The rise in the dominance of social media in the last 20 years. We all are looking for recognition and validation. We beg for it, and social media makes bank because they know it's in every one of us. All of those who avoid social media, like myself, we're just trying to avoid the shame that comes along with not feeling cool enough or good enough or or pretty enough as the people that get all the attention, right? But why do we look for validation? Why is it that we can get so wrapped up in politics and sports and feel a sense of accomplishment when our choice wins? Why is it? I argue, the deepest part of our being, our souls live and die by approval. As animals pant after water, maybe you've heard that before, our souls pant 
for approval. So we look every way, we look every direction for it. We absolutely do. And isn't it true that deep down we are oh so aware, we are so very aware of our shortcomings, which maybe explains why our want for approval is so pressing because we know what is difficult, we know what is challenging, we know what is you know, not wrong with us but is kind of against what we wish it would be. We know our weaknesses, don't we? We know our struggles and our failures and that makes our weaknesses and shortcomings so much more apparent and that makes this want for approval so much greater. We try to fix them, cover them up because we feel invalidated and incomplete because of them. And we run down any given path the world puts in front of us to try to solve it. And hear me out. This is my case for supporting that every one of us is in tune with our fallen nature. The reason why we all want approval is because we all know deep down there is something fallen about us. Now, I'm not saying that some, there's something wicked or evil or wrong or bad. I'm saying there's something fallen. There's something that just isn't like it's supposed to be, like we wish it would be. Now, I don't need to show you a verse to prove that. I, you don't need to be a believer to believe that. I think you just need to be a person that lives in the world that always feels like we're falling behind in some way. There is something fallen about every one of us, whether we want to admit it or not. Because we all know of our own want for approval and we all desperately try to satisfy it. We all have different ways, but the psychology behind every one of us all leads us to the same source. We want, we need approval and acceptance. And maybe you're thinking, what on earth does that have to do with Zacchaeus climbing up a tree to see Jesus? It has everything to do with Zacchaeus climbing up a tree to see Jesus. Because Zacchaeus was very rich. Zacchaeus was living in Jericho. He was the most successful of his day. Zacchaeus had everything anyone could ever want except the one thing that everyone wanted but couldn't find. The one thing that everybody needed but the one thing no one knew how to articulate. No one knew if it was possible or achievable until Jesus showed up and started giving it out to people. People follow, follow me here. Zacchaeus heard that one of Jesus' closest followers, one of Jesus' best friends, was actually a tax collector like him. And you've heard that story before. Luke tells us earlier that after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi or Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And I bet Zacchaeus heard this story. Now, the invitation, follow me, is more than just some random invitation to come hang out. It was very specific and, very, and carried tremendous weight in Jesus' day. In Jewish culture, it was like being picked for the big leagues in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, all Hebrew boys went, from, went to Torah school at five years old. And by age 17, you would apply to be under a rabbi as if you were going to college in a very private circle with a certain rabbi. You would apply for acceptance by this rabbi. And you would wait just patiently and excitingly that the rabbi might accept you. You would get an acceptance letter and it would say from the rabbi pretty much, I want you to follow me. I want you to shadow me. I want you to be my disciple. And if you got that invitation, you were accepted in the aristocratic and the um, academic circles and the religious circles, and you would never have to work pretty much other than just being a part of the religious ecosystem. But if you didn't get that letter, if you weren't accepted, you had to find some way to make ends meet in a world 
that didn't make it easy. A rabbi's selection would give his disciple a great deal of confidence. If the student was struggling, it would say to the student, I believe in you, I accept you, I've chosen you. This acceptance, this validation was exactly what every Jewish boy dreamed and was raised to want and pray for. But if you were 18 or older, if you missed your chance, you had to go down other avenues of life. Some turned to family business. Some did what they had to to survive, even if it meant selling out to Rome. It's into that world that Jesus showed up and he announced that he was sent from God to bring good news to everybody. Not just the ones who made the cut. Jesus stepped onto the pages of history and said this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to to proclaim good news to the poor, to set at liberty, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus went on to proclaim this favor over a few rabble fishermen, and then he paid a visit to the financial district of his town. And he found a man named Matthew. Now, Matthew's real name was Levi. Levi is a biblical, is an Old Testament name. One of the tribes of Israel was Levi. He would have been named after Levi, but in his shame, he changed his name to Matthew because he didn't want any connection to his former history because he had sold out to Rome. And Jesus goes to Matthew's house, or Levi's house, and he says to Levi again, I want you to follow me. Where are we going, Jesus? I want to hang out with you. And again, again, I got to say this. Matthew had a big house. Matthew had a lot of connections. Matthew had a lot of awesome get-togethers, a lot of good food. And I think Jesus said, okay, Matthew, I know where I want to go. I want to go to your house. And everybody looked around thinking, what? You want to go to that part of town? I mean, you want to go to that neighborhood? You want to go to those elitists, those, those really, you know, they aren't living right, Jesus. Those people are not like us. They're sold out to Rome. They're pagans. They're hypocrites. They're, 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 they're everything we're not. Now, the story tells us that Matthew left, that left everything or, you know, left his desk and rose up and followed him. And again, Jesus is like, hey, Matthew said, hey, we're going to go. We're going to go to your house, Jesus. And Matthew was like, well, this is the greatest thing I've ever experienced. Nobody wants to come to my house unless you're one of my tax collector friends. And we all just sit around and talk about who's richer. And we're all so stinking wealthy. It's just not even fun anymore. But Jesus rolls in with all of his poor fishermen and carpenter followers. And Levi made a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table. And all the religious people started posting and writing and saying awful things about Jesus because he was hanging out with the tax collectors. But Jesus is like, man, I've never had a meal like this in my life. Y'all never take me after synagogue. Y'all threw rocks at me after synagogue last week. Well, this guy took me to his house. People went from impressed by Jesus to distressed by Jesus. What on earth was he doing? Because while we may not instantly get this, they did. Jesus was offering people like Levi his approval as a rabbi authorized by God. Hear this. Jesus was claiming to offer God's approval and God's acceptance. Not just to follow him for a few years during his earthly ministry, but to follow God and be a part of God's family forever. 
pretty high profile claim, right? Unless it's actually legit. And people were claiming they were finding the approval they desperately longed for. And if you read the Gospels, you see people coming to Jesus from every corner. Gentiles, Jews, religious, sinner. He welcomed everybody. Read the Gospel of Luke. He uses that word over and over again. He welcomed them. They welcomed him. You read stories like this where it says he went through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news and great crowds gathered and people from town to town came after him because he was offering them what they all needed. You know how people flock? Everybody wants a piece of Jesus. And whether people get it or not, you know why people just flock to his name and to his teachings? It's because every one of us knows there's something that we need and Jesus has what we need. And churches get in the way of it sometimes. But God help us if we do. Crowds awaited him and welcomed him. He would arrive and claim to speak on behalf of God and leave them all different people, changed people. And if you ask one of them, how did he make you feel? What is different about you? They couldn't explain it. They couldn't describe it. But it became trendy. And it became kind of the word to use to say, Jesus made them feel saved. And they never used this word before. This was not an Old Testament word. This was a brand new word. It's the Greek word sozo, which means whole or complete. Nobody ever used this term religiously before. And people said, hey, what did Jesus do for you? And they would say, you know what? I don't know how to describe it, but it's like something was missing, and now it's not. Hello? It's like something wasn't there, and now it's there. It was like I was chasing after this and every other avenue of life, and I met Jesus, and he gave me what I was looking for. What did he save you from? All the wrong stuff I was wasting my life in. Wasn't that stuff fun? I thought it was, but it really wasn't making me feel better. What did he save you unto? He saved me to the one thing I needed most. He gave me the acceptance I was looking for and that I needed to feel. It's intangible, but it's so real, isn't it? You can read and you can see in every episode all begin and end these similar ways. People who were nothing like Jesus, like Jesus. And Jesus, who was from God, loved people who were far from God. As strange as Jesus at a table with them, it was as strange to see them with Jesus. Speaking of which, Luke 19 is the only story that features the city of Jericho in the Gospels. It was more of a crossroads for normal Jews. You would travel along the Jordan River and you would bypass Jericho and you would head to Jerusalem. Jericho and Jerusalem were these opposing cities. One stood for the nation's history before Rome and the other for the future under Rome. Jerusalem was this holdover of the ancient day and the place where God used to dwell and might would again. Jericho was this rebuilt city that had, was, had risen to new heights where the trendsetters and the elite and the rich called home. The wealthy people commuted from there to Jerusalem for their day jobs. Jer- Jesus didn't do much with Jericho because they didn't really have much interest for him there. But when he was passing through this day, all of a sudden people couldn't ignore him anymore. This tropical, luxurious, wealthy city where everybody had everything they could ever want, all of a sudden started giving Jesus a look. Because deep down inside, they all knew they needed more. You see, all this is really a symbol. Jericho, Zacchaeus, they were at a crossroads, just like many of us are right now. Zacchaeus, who no doubt heard that one of his colleagues had defected and followed Jesus, he scurried to get a glimpse of Jesus. Do you know what this all but confirms? 
Zacchaeus in a city where he was one of the who's who with all that he could ever want and all he could ever need, his actions confessed that he needed something greater to satisfy his heart. See, at this point, isn't that... The point is that we don't need approval or we don't need acceptance. The point is our hearts are searching for approval and acceptance in all the wrong places. See, a lot of us want to hear well done from somebody, from some voice in our head, from some feeling in our hearts. A lot of us want to hear well done from somebody's voice around us, beside us, a politician, a boss, a family member. But the only well done that can ever validate our soul is from the voice of the one who made us. You see, we are, we were created. We are creatures. Better than that, we are children of a single God. And I know this is where people push back in our world today, but there's no denying the similar desire within all of us, a similarly designed desire. We are creatures of one single creator who don't and can't control our beginning or ultimately we cannot control our end. So we are in higher, greater hands, aren't we? And let me be clear. This was not God's original plan. He's not a God who created us so that we would have to chase after favor or acceptance. He created people in harmony and at peace with Him, but humans rebelled and we fell. And that's why we so desperately struggle under this disconnect with our Creator. We feel the void. We feel the imbalance. And that's why we chase after and seek after approval in so many ways. But because we're fallen, we don't just need validation. We need vindication. And that's where Jesus' good news becomes even better and is understood as the best news because the approval we need, the acceptance we need, the validation we need, the vindication we need isn't for us to work for, it's for Jesus to give. You heard that right. It's not something you've got to work for or try to please somebody to get. It's something that Jesus came to give you free of charge, no strings attached. Romans 3 tells us the bad news and the good news in one sentence. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And, and, most of us cut it off right there, but and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You hear that? We are all fallen. We are all sinners. Yet all, because of Jesus, have access to the free gift of justification, of vindication, of approval and acceptance. God says over all on the basis of what Jesus has done, you're accepted, you're approved, you're validated, you're vindicated, you're justified. This opens the door to new life, opportunities, new potentials. It's ours simply by trusting in Jesus. And a lot of Christians, we struggle with this. This isn't just for people that never heard the gospel. A lot of us struggle with this, don't we? We get upset when other people get by with doing less than us. Hello? We get upset when somebody isn't as good as us, and yet they aren't punished. What is that? That's because we haven't rested in Jesus. Because we're mad about him letting somebody else off the hook when he let us off a lot. But we don't see it, do we? I'm not trying to pick on you. I'm just trying to expose the fact that we all are holding holding back from what, and God has a lot to give us today. We get confused when others seem to get what they want and we don't. We allow the enemy to tell us that we've done something wrong or we aren't good enough or God doesn't love us, right? We wonder if the good we get reflect God's love for us and if we don't get what we want, we feel like God doesn't love us, right? That's the enemy trying to get in between you and the gospel. 
And if you ever felt that way, if you're a Christian and you ever begin to wonder, does God still love me? Have I not done enough? Have I not been good enough? That's the enemy trying to get you away from Jesus, and he's done a good job at it, hasn't he? We begin to gauge our standing with God based on the good we've done over the bad we've done, and we try to rationalize that the good is better than the bad, and we never get peace. See, I'm not saying the Christian life isn't one of standards and of good works, but I am saying that none of that makes you a Christian. None of that makes you a Christian. Being a Christian makes you better, of course, but being better doesn't make us a Christian. Belonging to Jesus does. And if we forget that as Christians and begin to present a different gospel, we will step out of the security and the approval and the peace that is in Jesus alone. Trusting in, resting in, leaning on him. Now allow me to dig a little bit. Where are you looking for approval? Are you coming to God on the basis of what Jesus did or what you've done? Or what you haven't done? Do you wrestle with your condition being a reflection of God's approval or disapproval? Are you even coming to God at all? Are you looking after some other avenue? Maybe you're at a crossroad like Zacchaeus, and if you're wondering what Jesus did for you, how can he give you what you're looking for? I want to make sure this is very clear. It's all about the cross. We need to maximize, focus in on the cross, believe and trust that Jesus is enough. Jesus satisfied God for us, and God accepts us through Jesus. What God demands from us, Jesus did it for us, and God accepts you because of what Jesus did. We cannot move away from this. We cannot turn away from this. We've got to stay here or we will fall back into the rat race of society. Zacchaeus hoped and dreamed and believed that maybe Jesus would say to him like he did Matthew, my favor is yours as well. I want you to follow me. But who is he kidding? What had Zacchaeus done to deserve a well done? He'd done nothing. In fact, he had done all the wrong stuff. He only had one more play. Turn to Jesus. It might work. If it doesn't work, he's still lost. But if, he does, if it does work, who knows? Sometimes I think we overemphasize the nothing part. And listen, we can do nothing physically to help ourselves or save ourselves, but we do have a will. We do have a choice. You do have a choice. We can trust in Jesus. Nothing in our hands we bring, simply to the cross we cling. What can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus, right? All love surpassing knowledge, grace so full and free. I feel your sweet assurance, and that's enough for me. So Zacchaeus, like Matthew before him, chose to set his eyes on Jesus and surrender everything, place his rest and trust in him, hoping, believing, trusting the rumors might be true. If he turned to Jesus, Jesus would provide. So he climbs up in a tree and waited for Jesus to get there, believing that Jesus would join him. But little did Zacchaeus know that Jesus would actually take his place on a different tree to do what he couldn't do to accept and justify him and all of us. You see, Zacchaeus came down from his tree, but Jesus wouldn't because it was on his tree that he would die for you and for me. 
Zacchaeus turned to Jesus and the story tells us that Jesus turned and looked upon him as if he was waiting to see him. And he says to Zacchaeus, I've been looking for you. I came here just for you. And I believe Jesus is passing by right here today. And I think he's saying the same thing about all of you. You can take Zacchaeus' name. You can put your name there. Make haste and come down, for I, for today I must stay at your house. That means I must be in a relationship with you. I want to hang out with you. I want to do life with you. I want to spend my time with you because I've accepted you. I've approved you. The thing you're looking for, I've come to give it to you. Verse 6 says that Zacchaeus made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And then, because that nature is in all of us, he starts saying to Jesus, Oh, Jesus, I'm going to pay back everybody I ever ripped off. And not saying that he shouldn't pay back the people he ripped off. Jesus doesn't say, Oh, Zacchaeus, that's not necessary. But Jesus does tell Zacchaeus, Listen, Zacchaeus, it's not based on what you're going to do. You're going to do that stuff because you're going to be a better person. I get that, and you better do that stuff. But listen, this is not what it stands between me and you. Salvation is not based on what we might do. It's secured by who Jesus is and what he has done. Whether Zacchaeus knew or not, that was enough. That was all he had to do. Seek and find, trust and receive. Receiving Jesus, trusting Jesus, accepting Jesus is a joyful thing, bringing rest to our souls because greater than our choice is his choice of us. If you leave here with one thing and one thing only, know that the approval that we all long for is exclusively found in Christ. Ephesians 1 says, To the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. Verse number 9 says, Today salvation has come to this house. We need to read verse 9 and 10 every single day to preempt our flesh's attempt to look for salvation, acceptance in some other place by some other way. What we need, what we so desperately long for is found unlimited and completely for free in Jesus. And this isn't just about dying. This is about living as saved, empowered by God's love and God's will for us. I ask you at the beginning, what do you consider making it? I don't know what drives you every day, but I think we all are chasing after approval and acceptance every day. If you're at a crossroads like Zacchaeus, just know that today salvation has come to your house. And if you receive it, you receive him, the joy will be unspeakable. Because the Son of Man has come to seek and to save those that are lost. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for this reminder of the good news, the gospel of Jesus. Father, if there's anybody in the house today that would confess that they, they need, they are searching for it, they're looking for it, they're desperate for it. They want approval, they need acceptance, they, they need to feel validated. And Lord, that's a human desire, that's a normal desire that we all have and all will always have. But there's only one way to have that need met. There's only one answer for that greatest need. And that is found in Jesus Christ. He came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And he passes by today like he passed by Jericho. Like he passed by Zacchaeus' house.
And Lord, if we've climbed up in that tree to see if Jesus is looking our way, the good news is he is looking our way. He's coming our way. He's standing beside us today. He's in this house today. And if anybody would turn toward him and trust in him and leave it all on him, they can receive the acceptance, the approval that they have been looking for. Father, I pray you would bring that one to that place of receiving you, that place of surrendering to you. Lord, I don't know what they've got in their heart, whatever that void may be, whatever that imbalance may be, whatever that struggle may be, Lord, that disconnect, I know you can make it whole again because Jesus finished his job. He completed his mission. He saves those that are lost. God, God, renew, bring recommitment to our hearts that we might would stay and rest in your love. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.